1: Grace and peace to you, and welcome to Reaching for Real Life with Sean Ozzaro, the senior pastor of River City Community Church in San Antonio, Texas. Now this is a church that exists to help people just like you find the real life you were created for and then find it to the full. That's what Jesus promised in John 10.10. And today we begin a new series focusing on the final week of Jesus, and it's called Seven Days. And if it were your final seven days on earth and you knew it, how do you want to be Remembered? Jesus gave us some wonderful insight as to how we're to remember Him. Jesus is King. Is that true for you? And if so, what makes this true? And what does it mean for you? How will you approach life and live differently knowing that Jesus is your King? You can follow along with the notes and discussion questions for your own Bible study on the media page for this series, 7 Days, as seen at reallife.org. The message is called, Who Are You Following?, Pastor Sean is teaching from Luke chapter 19. It's time for Reaching for Real Life Radio. The
2: series is called Seven Days, The Final Week of Jesus. And I want to suggest it truly is um, one of the most exciting and eventful weeks in human history when you stop and think about it. We understand this eternal significance. We understand what was happening. But even as you just look at the stories, face value. Begins with an amazing celebration, a parade. It has intrigue, high drama. There's betrayal. There's an execution. And ultimately, a man is ends up literally being raised from the dead. You don't want to miss what we're going to be talking about because it all ushers us into this idea of who it is that we're really worshiping. You know, what's fascinating is everybody has an image or an idea of Jesus. And up to this point, up to this final week, everybody had an image or an idea. And this week, the things that happened kind of pushed all of the fog back and made crystal clear who he was. And I don't think anything's changed. I think we all have images or ideas of Jesus. And it drives me nuts when I see in pop culture in different settings where we kind of try to employ Jesus to make our point. In fact, earlier this week, I wrote a blog called uh, Beauty and the Boycott. (laughs) It was a response to the Huffington Post, some others, some different leaders who wrote things. And one of the titles was just playing, actually several had the title, Jesus Wouldn't Boycott Disney. And, you know, it was pretty hard slamming of any Christians who were having a big problem with what had been published about the new Beauty and the Beast movie, that there was a character who was overtly gay and that, you know, there was this idea of bringing this into, and, you know, there's all this different speculation that, well, as I've Talk to people who've seen it or read from people who've seen it and things. It turns out it's probably a a bit, the whole thing's a bit overblown. And the ironic thing is I haven't been able to find where anybody seriously called for a serious boycott, at least not in the name of Christianity. People say, well, Franklin Graham did. Um, I actually went and read what Franklin Graham wrote. He didn't ever use the word boycott. He didn't organize any boycott. He didn't call for some public boycott. He shared, again, if what's being said is true, it's disappointing, and I hope Christians will tell Disney no, but he didn't organize any big thing. But all over the media, Time Magazine wrote about it, all the different news outlets wrote about it, oh, Franklin Graham has called for this boycott. And so all these Christian leaders and others came out slamming any Christian who would kind of, and the word hypocrite was thrown around. And so my whole point of my blog was, come on, take it easy, because Honestly, whenever the culture says we want to mainstream something that the Word of God says is sin, we should give pause. We should stop and say, wait a minute, what are we really about? We should decide, are we going to participate? Are we going to support that? Is that something that we want? Especially when it's a children's story that is now taken, and some are claiming, hey, there's this social agenda to it. And again, please understand, I'm no big fan of boycotts. But my whole point was, hey, take it easy on your brothers and sisters who are honestly wrestling with this. Because the word of God is pretty clear. And so that was really the whole point of the conversation. But the, what, what bothered me so much about the thing is that Jesus was thrown in. Jesus wouldn't. Well, I began the whole blog by saying, well, yeah, that's a no-brainer, duh. Jesus had three years to start a ministry that would absolutely change the world. Uh, Jesus wouldn't have spent a lot of time in movies. Okay, jesus wouldn't had time to be a movie critic bottom line You want to know the big question is what jesus actually what would jesus say about us spending lots of time watching other people Interact versus actually going out interacting ourselves That's the real question about what would jesus say, but it's this idea that okay, we got a political agenda We got a social agenda and we want to bring jesus into it So let's twist it and make jesus say what we want him to say and I hate that (laughs) Because jesus actually said things he actually stood for things, you know And the what would Jesus do thing is a wonderful book in his steps. I love the book. I love what the initial intent was. But if you separate it from the maybe even more important question, what did Jesus do? What would Jesus do is really important for us to ask in our situation. But the only way to answer that is by answering the question, what did Jesus do? And so that's what we're going to look at this week because we're going to get a glimpse because the events that we're talking about they remove any doubt as to who Jesus really is. And they kind of put Jesus above the fray on all these different things that we try to, I think, sometimes get him on our side with. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 19. I'm going to begin reading at verse 28. See, I want to suggest Jesus' final week starts with a clear revelation of who he really is. Let's start at verse 28. And when he said these things he had been teaching, he actually was teaching a version of the parable of the talents. And he had shared these things, and he's sharing about things that are to come and about the kingdom of God. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, a couple observations from just those few verses. We're going to read more, but that is an obvious to anybody who understood the old testament any devout jewish kind of reader listener they understand that's a beautiful fulfillment this whole scene that we're going to look at a beautiful fulfillment of zechariah chapter 9 9 and 10 talking about the messiah the king so there was that revelation and anytime we see prophecy fulfilled anytime we see the word of god made true we should celebrate because like god keeps his promises god keeps his promises god's word is true and that's a powerful thing But we also have to understand that like this event, these are real people in real time, in real history. And I have to put myself in the place of those two disciples that Jesus says, go into this town, you're going to find a colt that nobody's ever ridden, and you're going to bring it to me. And if anybody asks why, just tell them the Lord needs it. And so they're going off, and you can just see them. Wow, this is weird. We're horse thieves now. This is what we've been reduced to. Horse thieves. Because that's where they're living. That's, that's the reality. First of all, it's a cult that nobody's ever ridden. Well, well Jesus, what are you going to do with it? Okay, I grew up training horses. And so it's like, okay, that doesn't really make sense that you're going to try to use that. Couldn't we get something a little more established, a little more trained? But also, it's something that we don't own, and you just want us to go take it. And then they go, and it's exactly as Jesus said. And I can just see these four two disciples. Hurry, quick, get it. Hurry, no, you get it. Hurry up. And they untie the cult. And just like Jesus said, when they're going off, the owner comes and says, why are you taking the colt and they say the lord needs it just like jesus told them to and the owner says okay take it and i find that whole thing fascinating they put jesus on it and it begins this whole process the whole thing the idea of a colt that nobody had ever ridden that that jesus is now going to ride that i have actually ridden colts that nobody's ever ridden it's not fun you know that's for people, when, that's, when I was much younger and had no money, they hired people like me to do that. Because we were the only ones dumb enough who would do that. And getting it from someone we don't even know, and, and the whole point, what they saw, this whole crazy scenario, which it really was from their perspective, it just said, Jesus is a whole lot bigger than we think. See, Jesus has dominion over a cult that hasn't been ridden. Because to Jesus, it's just like a storm that's threatening to capsize the boat and jesus gets up and says peace be still and it does And to a colt who ne- i mean i can just imagine jesus going up and kind of scratching its ears this young probably a donkey the full colt of the donkey old enough to be ridden now but not broken and i can just see jesus and you can just see the animal calm down oh wait a minute this is the master oh it's the master it'll be fine guys it'll be fine see he has dominion over nature he has power that we don't even understand he has servants who aren't a part of what we're doing. Do you know, River City, we're not the only church in town? I mean, we're not going to be the only ones in heaven. I don't want to disappoint some of you. I <laughs> Hope you're okay with that. But God's doing all kinds of things. There's all kinds of great works, great ministries. There's great people who are serving the Lord. And they got to meet someone who they didn't know. He wasn't one of their number. They had no idea who he was. But he was a follower of Jesus. He'd heard about Jesus. He was surrendered. He recognized the Lord. So when they said the Lord needs it, he knew exactly who they're talking about. And he said, take it. You see, he's bigger than our fear. He's bigger than our obstacles. And he has servants and he has people. He's doing things on so many different levels that we don't know about. They saw Jesus differently when they're leading that colt back and when they put him on it. They saw him differently, and that's the whole point. I think that's the point we're supposed to take, too. We're supposed to see Jesus differently.
1: And this is when we take a quick minute to remind you you're listening to Reaching for Real Life with Sean Azaro, the Senior Pastor of River City Community Church in this message called Who Are You Following? which is available right now on the media page at reallife.org Just look for the series called Seven Days where there you can even watch a video podcast of this message and series And while you're there, if you've been blessed by this teaching, your gift of any amount helps this radio ministry continue to help others. Just find the Give tab at reallife.org
2: Picking up verse 36, we read, And as he rode along on the colt that had never been ridden, fulfilling prophecy, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they'd seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones would cry out. This amazing story just keeps getting more amazing. This little processional that starts out with his disciples and some followers, it gathers steam in this whole, and the the scripture uses the word multitude. A huge crowd of people begin to worship him. They they put their coats in front, making like a a little red carpet kind of thing. One of the other gospel writers tells us they use palm branches and they put them before him and create this little royal carpet and they begin to worship him. And they declare him the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They sing Hosanna, which means praise the Lord. They worship. And let me just say to you, this multitude worshiping Jesus, as he has this triumphant entry into Jerusalem, it is exactly right. It is as it should be. But what I find interesting and actually kind of sad is that within the week, many of those multitude are going to shout, crucify him as part of another crowd. And when all the dust settles and the followers of Jesus gather after the resurrection, after everything has occurred, after the most gut-wrenching weeks that they've ever experienced, when they all gather in the upper room, there's 120 of them. What happened to the multitude? Where'd they all go? See, it's not songs, it's not excitement or enthusiasm, it's not palm branches that make a worshiper. I like to think that maybe some of these people were among the 3,000 who were saved, who were filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But I don't know. I just know that when they gathered in the upper room and all the followers of Jesus was there, there were only 120 of them. It's not songs, it's not waving your hands or palm branches or any of that that makes someone a worshiper. It's not being part of the crowd that makes you a worshiper. Be careful about judging based on the crowd. And of course, we know in the crowd there were critics, and there always are in the crowd. Don't be bothered by that. When the critics come, no matter what it is, if God asks you to do something and you go do it, it just, and, and critics start coming, instead of like, oh my gosh, there's critics, uh, just know, okay, there's always critics. If you have people in your life who have the gift of criticism, just good for you, God bless you. That's, it's a cheap gift. There's always critics. But what was fascinating about this crowd is that they were critics of the worship. And understand something real worship is off putting to those who aren't worshipers, who don't get it. It really is. There's something that it rubs them wrong. And they tell Jesus, Master, tell them to be quiet. And he says that amazing phrase if, if they don't, if these keep silent, the very stones will cry out. In other words, folks, Jesus is going to be worshiped no matter what. He is God over nature. He is God over creation. If we don't worship him, the stones, the mountains, the trees, the sky, all of it will just ring with his praise and his worship. We go on. Verse 41, and when he drew near, he saw the city. Now this is interesting. He wept over it saying, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you, and they'll not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You have to understand how striking that pit, partick, those few verses are. Be- because Jesus is in the midst of a huge celebration. It says they're literally rejoicing. So these people are celebrating. It's a party. It's a coronation. This is the Messiah, the King. They're ecstatic. They're laughing. They're joyful. The palm branches, the cloaks, the disciples. It's like, this is it. And this huge celebration is happening. And Jesus is weeping. Not tears of joy. But he's weeping for those who aren't part of that crowd. He's weeping over those who aren't with them. Those who missed it, those who were going to be destroyed as a result of their blindness. See, this whole scene makes something perfectly clear. We understand that Jesus is a prophet. We know that. And they understood that. We understand that Jesus is the great teacher of all time. And they understood he was a great teacher. We know he is our humble Savior, he's the friend of sinners. But lest we forget, first and foremost, he is something else above all of that. And this passage makes that abundantly clear. It is a powerful scriptural declaration. This passage kicks off Jesus' final week by declaring and illustrating one very powerful idea. And it is this. The call to follow Jesus is the call to follow the king. The call to follow Jesus is a call to follow the king. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just one of the many options, one of the many voices. No, no, no. He is the king. And this passage in so many ways makes that crystal clear. The call to follow Jesus is the call to follow the king. Now let's take a moment and talk about the kingdom because one of the things we understand if we look at the scripture is that Jesus didn't talk a whole lot about the church. Okay, it's because it wasn't launched yet. Okay, he he obviously was the first one to talk about the church. He said, you know, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So he did talk about the church. He talked about something that he was going to build. The apostle Paul is really the one who more taught us how to be the church. But Jesus didn't talk a lot about the church. He talked more about the kingdom. Because he wasn't just bringing and building one community. He was transforming the world and he was bringing about a kingdom. Now, for us, we don't use that phrase a lot. So when we say a kingdom, well, we think of nation-states. You know, there's the United Kingdom. Some people refer to Saudi Arabia as the kingdom, you know, and we understand the literary and the historical references there. But when we think of kingdoms, it's kind of like, modern, no, 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 we think of, of nation-states. Well, in Jesus' day, the idea of kingdom was crystal clear. They understood kingdoms. A kingdom had a different king had a different rule of law, had a different language. It was different. And when you, it was very clear when you were leaving one kingdom and entering another. And what Jesus is making clear in his constant teaching of the kingdom, think how many times he talks about the kingdom. How many of the parables begin with, well, the kingdom of God is like, and then he tells you, it's like a mustard seed. It's like tares of wheat. It's like all, all these different things. He tells these different stories. Designed to help us understand what the kingdom is like. You see, he is ushering in a kingdom that is going to rule creation. Understand, God is king empirically. He created all, he is Lord overall. But sin caused a rebellion that started a subversive counter kingdom, if you will. And Jesus Christ came to restore order as God created it, to restore the kingdom. So all this teaching, all this gospel teaching, everything about the kingdom is we're leaving one kingdom and entering into another. And this is the difficult part for us. This is the part that's challenging. Because when you start talking about the king and the kingdom, it becomes crystal clear, something's changing. And we are leaving the kingdom of man for the kingdom of God. We're leaving the kingship of man and entering into the kingship of God. And that's, that's tough because, you know, in our own lives, we want to be king. You know, I've told you before, one of the hardest things about if if I can pretend there's not a God, if I can explain away God, then that really works well for me because I get to be God, right? In my own little circle, in my own little world. You know, the kingdom of man says man is the ultimate, the highest, the final authority. So if I can kind of manipulate it to where I'm the man in my own little setting, or maybe if I could even kind of rise up politically or rise up with wealth or power, I could be the man in bigger and bigger settings, then then I can kind of be like God. And nobody's going to tell me because I do what I want. And that's the very core of the sin nature, isn't it? That's the core of the sin nature is I do what I want. I mean, that's, what, that's that's what it's all about. And into that comes the message of the kingdom that says, no, 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 I want you to, want you to leave the kingdom of self, of flesh, of rebellion against God. I want you to enter into the kingdom of God. For he's king. This is one of the hardest things for us to wrap our heads around, and I, I dare say even more than our heads, our hearts around. Saying, okay, I'm not going to be king anymore in my own life. I am going to surrender that to Jesus, and I am going to become part of the kingdom of Jesus. See, the call to follow Jesus is the call to follow the King. And when, the minute I declare Him King, I'm declaring myself subject. The minute I call Him Lord, I'm calling myself servant. There's powerful implications to this doctrine that we're talking about here. The call to follow Jesus is the call to follow the king. Now, through this passage, we see several different things about this king and about this kingdom that I want to point out. The first is this. Jesus is a king who comes in power and authority. Jesus is a king who comes in power and authority. That little illustration for those two disciples and for the others. He has power over nature, whether that be the seas, whether that be a colt of the donkey, whatever it is. He has power and he has authority. And he is working in ways and through people that we don't know about. You see, there was a glimpse, they were given again another glimpse of, this is not just some prophet, this is not just some good teacher. No, no, Jesus has power and authority. He is a king with power and authority. And his is a kingdom with power and authority. And that's hard for us because we've lost all idea of authority. Authority for us is generally something that you kick against unless you have it and then you hang on to it, you know, for dear life. Jesus is a king who comes in godly power and authority. See, they're given just a glimpse of the ultimate reality. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. He says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Okay, I want you to see that again. Who, though he was in the form of God, understand, because that's, that's what we're talking about, Jesus, part of the Godhead. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then down verse 14 of John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, he was God. And Paul was saying, he's, it, through, he, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, he voluntarily laid that down by taking the form of a servant. So he left his original form and he took on a different form, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, there's that word again, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now listen, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
1: That's Pastor Sean Azaro. You've been listening to Reaching for Real Life Radio. And If you'd like to hear this full message called Who Are You Following? or this whole series on the final seven days of Jesus' time on earth, it's available right now on demand at reallife.org. And while you're there, we'd appreciate your feedback. You can leave us a note on our Contact Us page, or even better, your financial gift helps this radio ministry continue.